So we're, we're finishing up this series, Unchained. It's uh, been just kind of a short uh, five-week thing to, to get us transitioned out of a long book, which we looked at 2 Corinthians. Uh, it took a long time in that. Um, we're kind of in this gap, gap period before that and before we jump into another book. So on the other side of Easter, I think, <clears throat> I think last week I said that we were going to be starting Lamentations next week, but that's wrong. Uh, we're doing Palm Sunday and then Easter, and then we're getting into Lamentations in a few weeks. Um, but we'll jump back into a book of the Bible here fairly soon. <clears throat> and um, in the meantime, though, we've been looking at Romans chapter 8 through a particular angle. There's so many angles we could have taken in this chapter. Uh, there's so much to talk about. But, but we're looking at it through this lens of being set free. And what does it mean to be set free? And, and how, do, how do we actually experience more of that freedom in Jesus? And so uh, we, we uh, start this out by looking at Romans 8, verse 1 through 4, I think really is the, the summary of everything we've been looking at. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law, or because the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Because God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So that passage tells us that one, there is no condemnation. We are not condemned if we're in Christ because we've been set free. We've, we've been given this unchained heart to love and serve Jesus. But, but that doesn't remove the tension that we all feel. Uh, I was reminded a couple days ago, my youngest son came upstairs and he asked, uh, we, Crystal and I were sitting in the living room and he started talking to, to Crystal primarily. So I just got to be a fly on the wall of this strange conversation, but it was good. He said, okay, uh, Jesus has removed my sins, right? Just out of the blue, right? Kids do that. They're just out of the blue, ask these questions and said, well, yeah, of course, you know, you trusted Jesus. He's taken away your sins. And he said, okay, so then why do I still pinch my brother? <laughs> that's what kids do, right? I mean, so that's the worst of his problems. He's six. So the worst of his problems is that he pinches his brother, and, and uh, we're working on that. But, but that's, so he feels that tension as a six-year-old. Like he knows Jesus forgives him for his sins, but he still sins. So what's the, what's the deal with this, right? And so that's, that's what we've been trying to navigate through all of this uh, over the last four or five weeks. Um, we live in a state of tension. We, we know we've been set free, but we don't often feel free. So the, the, the issue here is that we're not always going to feel free. That's the fact. We've got to get that through our heads. We are still going to struggle with sinful temptations and sinful actions and inclinations. We are still sinful, even though all those sins have been paid for by the cross of Christ. We're not... Those sins are not held against us if we're in Jesus, but we're still sinful people. And so we have to be okay somewhat with this tension. Um, we have to learn how to walk in it. And that's what I think Romans 8 has been helping us to see. So here's where we've been. I've already said it, but, 
the first main idea of Romans 8 is this, that God has set us free because Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He has lived a perfect life. He died in the place of sinners. He rose again from the dead. He did what we could never do so that we could be in him and actually have all of his perfection applied to us. Then we see the ne- kind of the next big move of this chapter is that because that's happened, we have the Holy Spirit of God himself living within us and he empowers us and leads us to live for him. Now, again, we don't always listen to him. We don't always do what we're called to do, but we have the empowering of the Holy Spirit within us to live within that freedom. And, and that was really over the course of a couple weeks, we looked at those, those elements of the Holy Spirit. And today we're going to wrap it all up. So I've, I'm going to take us through two more things, just two more things uh, of a million things that could be said about this. We're going to look at two things that hopefully will help you as you live and as I live in the tension between being free in Christ and not always feeling free in Christ. So we'll start in verse uh, 28 through 30, and uh, we'll read all this to get it in front of us, then we'll back up and talk about what we're seeing. All right, 28 says, For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All right, so, so how do these verses help us navigate the tension that we face in the Christian life between being sinful and being freed from sin? that tension. Like, th- this is, I think this is where Paul's going to take us. And it's this, that these verses remind us that, that as we walk through the Christian life, we've got to have the long view in mind. We've got to keep the long view. Now, we sort of touched on this a bit last week when we talked about the role of patience in our lives as we, as we navigate these things. It's a similar thing, but there's a, there's a different kind of twist to this. Um, keeping the long view is different than being patient because being patient means, you know, we, we just got to give ourselves a lot of grace, recognize that, that God's got a work that he's doing in us. But to keep the long view really means that we keep our eyes focused on the, the eternal plan of God. That God actually is the one who's working all things to, to his glory and our good. And, and he's got a whole plan that he has uh, set into motion. And if we don't keep our eyes on that eternal plan, we're going we're gonna to lose so much of our hope. We're going we're gonna to be caught up so much in the weeds. Or, or one of the things I say a lot is the, the phrase, oh, we, we'll miss the forest for the trees, right? So when you're in the forest, you can, you can get distracted or kind of focused on individual trees rather than on the big picture of what you're in. And, 
And that's the, the tension that we have to deal with is rather than getting so caught up in the, in the moment of the, the temporary issues of our life right now, we need to keep our eyes on the eternal plan, the, the overarching long view of all of this. And so let's, let's just look at what Paul says about this. Verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, so that's, that's a key phrase there, okay? You have to love God for this to be true of you. You have to be in Christ for this to be true. But if you love God, if you're in Christ, here's the promise. All things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. Now that I know can, can sound like a, one of these Christian cliches, right? And we... A lot of times, I think we we mistakenly use this passage at the wrong time in people's lives, especially as somebody goes through suffering and hardship, and we'll throw this verse to them, and it's like it doesn't really help them in that moment because what they need is a hug. They don't need spiritual platitudes. Okay, I just want to encourage you with that. Like, yes, this is true, but there's a time and a place for it to be to be given. And, and I, I know I, had a, I, had a, I took a theology of suffering class when I was in undergraduate uh, school and, uh, at Moody Bible Institute. And one of the first things that professor said, at least uh, maybe it wasn't one of the first things, but it's the thing I remember him saying, was that don't, he said, don't use Romans 8, 28 until you've listened. And, and I think that's, that's so huge. So I just, that's kind of a little aside on this. But, but that, but this verse is true, right? It is true. It speaks truthfully that for those who love God, all things do work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. What this means is that everything, all things are used by God in his eternal plan to, to turn everything around for the ultimate good of every human heart who loves Jesus. That's an astounding promise. It's not, it's not a promise that I, I think we have to experience here and now, though. I, I don't think what Paul is meaning in this is that, oh, okay, so you had this bad thing happen to you. Well, you know, it's all going to come back around. And before, before you're, you know, ever even done processing all these problems, something good's going to come out of this. I don't know that that's necessarily true because I don't think that that's in view of what Paul's saying. Paul is talking about the eternal plan of God, the grand scheme, the big picture. He's, he's reminding us of the long view. And so, yes, ultimately, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Yes, but that doesn't mean that right here and right now, all those bad things that happen to you are going to be turned around for good in a moment, in an instant. I don't, I don't think that that's what's in view here. I think it's the big picture, long view that we're supposed to look at. And now here's the thing. This, I think, is where it starts to get encouraging. At least for me, as I, as I look at this and understand it, I, this means if all things work together for good, that includes all things, right? All. It means everything. It means your, the bad things that have happened to you. It also means the bad things that you've done it means everything God can take and use for his glory and his purpose and turns it around for good. 
The classic example of this in the, New, in the Old Testament uh, is the story of Joseph. Uh, you're, you're probably familiar with Joseph and the Technicolor dream coat, right? You've probably heard of that, at least, if nothing else. But he, here's the story of Joseph in a nutshell. It's a long story and don't have time to unpack all of it. But um, Joseph was the youngest son of Jacob uh, at the time uh, that the story starts. And he was the favorite son because he was the son of Jacob's favorite wife. Do you, do you see the problems in this? Okay. He's got more than one wife and he's got like at the same time, okay, problem, big, big problem. Um, and, and you just start to see the dysfunction break down, right? Because human beings are sinful and the Bible doesn't take, you know, and sugarcoat all of that. The Bible shows us a very dark picture of humanity. And so you have Jacob who's got these two wives He's married to at the same time. He has kids with one, a bunch of kids with one, but he doesn't like that wife, so he doesn't like those kids. <laughs> and he's got the other wife that he loves who's having trouble having children, and then she's able to have Joseph, and so guess what? Joseph gets to be the favorite. That's like, I mean, that's just dark in itself. Right? Okay, so let's, let's acknowledge that. Long story short, Joseph's brothers, the, the big group of them from the one wife, hate Joseph. Not a huge shock there, right? A lot of resentment, a lot of bitterness, a lot of um, jealousy. And Joseph was also a snot-nosed brat, okay? No, no denying it, he was. He was a jerk at the time. And like little brothers tend to be. So he pinched his brothers a lot. You know? that's, what, that's what happens, uh, <laughs> metaphorically. So, so anyways, his brothers concoct this plan and they, they plan to kill him. Like, this it descends really, really badly, really fast. And they're like, we just need Joseph out of this picture. Let's kill him. Um, one of the brothers kind of decides, well, let's not kill him. And he convinces his brothers to sell him instead. Not much better. But the plan was for this brother to be able to rescue Joseph before he was actually sold. Didn't work out that way. That brother was out of the picture. He was somewhere else. The other brothers were like, okay, let's sell him. Here's some slave traders coming down the road. Let's sell him now. And they sold him. Uh, and they brought, and these slave traders brought Joseph down to Egypt as a slave. So picture this. I mean, here's a teenage kid. He's a teenager, most likely. He's not this big grown adult with his own family. He's a young kid who's now being sold by his own brothers into to the hands of strangers, being led to a foreign country away from his dad, away from his home, um, completely alone. And, and then once he gets to Egypt, things start to look good for him for a while. He gets a great job as, as the kind of the head of the household for this rich guy named Potiphar. And he's running the house and he's managing the staff and he's like the chief of staff for this rich guy. Um, but then that rich guy's wife decides she wants to sleep with Joseph and he's not going to go there. He's not going to sin in that way. And so she then concocts this story that uh, he, he uh, assaulted her and he gets thrown in prison. So it just keeps getting worse. And then he's just rotting in prison for years. Um, but eventually somebody uh, remembers that Joseph is really good at telling uh, the, the meaning of dreams and he's brought out of prison to tell Pharaoh about a dream. And then through that, right, he's given this position of authority in the, in the country. He sets the country on a path to, to save, a, save up a bunch of food, to have a bunch of reserves 
because a famine is going to come through. God told Joseph this famine's going to come through and it's going to decimate everybody. So, so Egypt stockpiled a bunch of food to weather through the famine. And they did that all at Joseph's leadership. So that, that of course, was, okay, good, right? So, so it's kind of a bunch of ups and downs. Ultimately, that famine comes. Joseph's brothers and parents are about to starve to death and they come down, his brothers go down to Egypt to buy food because everybody knows that Egypt was prepared for this. So let's go to Egypt and buy food. And that's where they're confronted with Joseph. And long story, but at the conclusion of this whole thing, Joseph and his brothers have this confrontation, not a, not a fight, but just like they're, they're in front of each other again. And the brothers are convinced that Joseph is going to kill them because he's in a position of power and they're not right? The, the power dynamics shifted. And so Joseph assures them. And here's what he says. Here's the classic verse. What you intended for evil, God intended for good, for the saving of many lives. What you intended for evil. So Joseph doesn't like whitewash this whole story and go, well, you know, you get what you guys did wasn't so bad. Like, no, he acknowledges you guys meant this for evil. You meant to kill me. You sent me away to get me out of your life. This was not a good thing that you did. But God intended that evil for good, for the saving of many lives. And ultimately, God saved many lives because God used Joseph in that position to stockpile food and and get people through a famine. So we have these stories in the scriptures that point us in this direction. And sometimes I think we can read these Old Testament stories and go, well, it worked out for Joseph or it worked out for Job or it worked out for Daniel or it worked out for name somebody in the Old Testament who's, who had terrible things happen and then they turned out okay. And, and so we might think to ourselves, well, then that should just work out for us. Why, why don't we have the fairy tale ending? But the the issue is that we need to recognize that what God was doing in the Old Testament was preparing us for Jesus. And and these stories of the Old Testament don't don't promise us any ultimate fulfillment here and now for us, but they do point us to the fulfillment of of God's mercy and grace ultimately in his eternal plan. So, So while we may lose everything here and now, We won't lose everything in eternity. Christ has a plan for us. You might not have your fairy tale ending here, but you will have God's good plan working all things together for good. Ultimately, ultimately, not necessarily right this moment. So we need to recognize that that's that's what's in view here. Romans 8.28 is not a promise that, well, this is just going to be fine for you. Don't worry. It might not be fine for you. And I'm just going to burst your bubble on that, okay? We live, in a, we live in a world where we think it all has to be perfect. And it, we don't live in a perfect world. We actually saw that a lot last week. That was what most of what Paul was talking about was, that, that we don't live in a perfect world. And, but we do have an eternal hope, a, a hope that is going to last way beyond what happens here and now. So as we get into verse 29 and 30, Paul just begins to unpack uh, that eternal plan. He gives us a glimpse into the plan of God. Look Look at verse 29. For those whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined, 
to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this is the the beautiful overarching story of God's redemption for humans. And there's really five things in this that we're told God does for us. Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. That's the, that's the train. That's the, those are the cars of the train, right? And so what are, what's the first thing we're told? That we are foreknown. Those whom he foreknew. What does that mean? Well, here's, here's, the, uh, here's what that means just fundamentally. It means that God set his heart and his love on you before you were ever born. Before you were even a, a thought to your parents. In fact, way before, before that even. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that before the foundation of the world, God set his love on us. That we have this God who knew us before we ever existed. And he determined in his good and, and perfect plan to make you one of his children. Th- these are things that are mind-blowing, but, they sh- but when we r- understand them in the context of the scriptures, they should give us incredible hope because it shows us that God is not apathetic to us. He's not just like, okay, well, whatever with us. He has a whole plan for us, and that plan um, is an eternal plan that, has, that he set his heart and love on us from the very foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world. So those whom he foreknew, it says he also predestined. Now, some of you might hear that word and it's a dog whistle to you, okay? You might be freaking out right now. It's in the Bible. I'm not, I'm not saying these, I'm not making it up. It's in the Bible. I'm just reading you the Bible, okay? So what does this predestined thing mean? And I don't think it's nearly as, controversial as as we've made it out to be i don't think it should be as as controversial as we've made it out to be i think it's a glorious thing when you think about the word predestined that word simply means that god determined in advance what our destiny would be what our ultimate end would be which is as paul goes on to elaborate he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. So so God, knowing us in advance, set his heart and love on us and determined that those whom he has loved in advance, he is going to conform into the image of Jesus. He's going to make us like Jesus one day. And God decided to do that in advance, in, in advance of us being being alive in advance of us having any good or bad in us. Um, And this really is foundational to our understanding of God's love. Because if, if God did not set his heart to love a bunch of raggedy old sinners like me and you in advance, we would, have, we would have ruined our chances a thousand times over. It would have been that daisy, he loves me, he loves me not thing where we have to fight so hard against. Because God's love is not fickle. God's heart for you has been set from eternity past. That's amazing. And you should be thankful for that, not, 
not, and again, we can get into all these theology debates and stuff, and that, that's, not my, that's not my game here. I'm not trying to, and some of you may not even have an idea that there are fights about this, but there are. A lot of people fight about this in Christianity, and it's kind of silly that we do. Because I think we, can, we should all be grateful that God would actually set his heart and love on us without there any, being any condition that we would be good or right or do all the right things. That's impossible. And if God hadn't chosen to love us, we'd be in a huge world of hurt. So those whom he predestined, it says, um, in verse 30, he also called. So this is, this is the, the, the response part of this. If you're thinking predestined means I'm a robot, no, you're not a robot. You're not programmed to, to just do this thing. Like you have a will, you make decisions. And this is where that calling comes in. But here's the issue. Uh, God calls you and you're going to respond at some point if he's calling you. His grace is irresistible. His grace is undeniable. It doesn't mean you can't resist it in a temporary moment of time. But if God has set his heart on you from eternity past, how can you thwart that plan? You can't. So eventually, God's going to get you. He's going to call you, and you'll respond at some point in, in time as he's calling that out to you. And I think that's hugely important, that those who are called... Um, to this salvation, will respond to it in faith. And, but, but here's the key. When we look at Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, what does it say? It says that by grace you have been saved through faith. Right? So it's the grace of God that saves us, and our response to that grace is belief and trust. We respond in faith, but it's the grace of God that is, is drawing us in The calling of God is that grace that he extends to us. And then he says this, that those whom he called, he also justified. To be justified means that we have responded to the call of faith. We've trusted in Jesus. And and our relationship with God is then restored. We're, We're in a right standing with him. We actually can have a right relationship with him again. And so that word justified is a really important word in the, in the Bible. But what it simply means is that when God looks at you as you've trusted in Jesus, it is just as if I'd never sinned. Okay, that's how you can think of it. That's the old, that's the old Sunday school way of doing this. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's what justified means. It means that God looks at you and you are right with him. You are in a good perfect relationship with him because of what Jesus has done for you. You've been made, ju- you've been made right, righteous and you're justified before him. And that's where we sit right now, you guys. If you're a believer in Jesus, that's where you are. You are, though you are a sinner and I'm a sinner. We've all sinned today, right? We've all been in that boat. Even now, our thoughts are not where they should be. But this is the, the amazing truth of the gospel that because God set his heart on us in advance, determined to, to love us re, bef, before we did anything good or bad, he loved us, he set his heart to save us. He then at some point in your life, and maybe that call has, has come right now today. Perhaps it's already happened to you. Perhaps it's still yet future, but there will be a time in your life that he will call and you will respond and he will set you right with him. And he will, he will actually clean your whole slate. There will not be a sin that he holds against you. It's an amazing promise. 
And then it says this, that those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the ultimate end result of God's eternal plan, that you and I would be completely full and fulfilled in Jesus Christ eternally, and that we will not have any more stain of sin on us in any capacity at that point in time. When we are with him in in person, face to face, we will be perfect and like Jesus. So that whole plan to predestine you to become conformed to the image of Jesus is actually then fulfilled at the glorified moment of your life. That's, that's the long view. And so these little moments of sin and struggle and temptation that we're in, those don't counteract this truth or those don't, those don't like negate it It doesn't nullify it. These things are true. This is your eternal hope if you're in Christ. But you you have to keep your eyes on the the end goal because if you don't, you're going to get so distracted in the moment-by-moment struggles. So that's the first thing. We need to keep our eyes on the long view. But then... Then Paul's going to keep going here because this passage still has another paragraph or so to look through. And I think this is an incredible passage. So let's turn to the second thing here. Uh, Verse 31, uh, we'll read 31 through 34 and then we'll, we'll stop and talk for a few minutes. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Paul, Paul begins this long string of questions. And he's going to continue to ask these long string of questions throughout the rest of this chapter. And basically, these are questions to make us think about, okay, where does all this ultimately go? Where does this ultimately lead um, as we're trying to live in the freedom of Christ? And the answer to that question is it ultimately leads right back to the heart and love of God. That the love of God is what leads us back to his heart when we stumble and fall. And so he asks these questions, right? What shall we say to these things? So the overarching question is, okay, if God has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified us, what can we say to that? That's incredible. That blows our minds. How can we have any response at all to these, this amazing work of Jesus? And the answer that Paul's going to give us is we really don't have an answer to that, but we can lean into the love of God because that's what this is all about. It is God's love that motivated him to foreknow and predestine and call and justify and glorify you. So if, he, if God is for you, who can be against you? Answer, no one, right? That's, that's the obvious answer Paul wants us to see. Um, the God who did not spare his own son, 
Jesus, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? If God gave Jesus over to death for your sins, how is he not going to glorify you? How will he not finish this thing out? That's the question. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? If you've been chosen and loved and God has set his heart on you, who can bring a charge against you? No one can. Who, uh, God, is, God actually, he actually answers that, right? He, this is one of the few times that he actually answers the question. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. There's no charge against, there's, not, there's no case against you because God has said you have not sinned. Think about that. God has said to you, because you've trusted in Jesus, if you have, right? I'm not presuming all of you have. But if you've trusted Jesus, God says to you, you have not sinned. What? Well, that's because Jesus' righteousness is our righteousness. His perfection becomes our perfection. Yes, we still, and that's just so mind-blowing because we are sinners. We know we're sinners. And yet God doesn't look at us as sinners. He doesn't put any charge against us because he's the one who justifies. Who is to condemn? Here's another answer. Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God. Who's interceding for us. Who can condemn? So back to verse one of this chapter, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Why is there no condemnation? Because Jesus Christ is the one who died. He was condemned. He was condemned for you and for me. More than that, he was raised and he's at the right hand of God right now. Um, There's a book called um, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices by a Puritan named Thomas Brooks. Again, another guy who's from the 1600s. But basically this book goes through the different ways that that Satan tries to convince us we're not Christians and how we can actually combat that with scripture. It's an amazing book. But one of the things that he talks about in this is, uh, I think it ties into the verses we're looking at right now, is that one of the many things that Satan does uh, uh, to convince us that Jesus um, isn't our savior is to tell us that he's unwilling to save you. It's one of the ways that Satan will lie to you. He'll point out to you all of your sin and go, how could God want to save you? Well, we just read in the scriptures verses that demolish this lie. The links that Jesus went to to save you should definitively prove that he's willing to do that. God did not spare Jesus, but gave him up for us all. Guys, don't don't believe the lie that God is unwilling to save you. He's willing, and he went to the greatest lengths human beings can go to do so. He died on the cross for you. Verse 35, uh, let's read this, verse 35 through 39. More questions. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Good question, right? Let's, let's think about this, right? Paul keeps going. He, he asks a bunch of rhetorical questions. Shall tribulation separate you from Christ? Or distress? Will that? Persecution? 
famine, nakedness, danger, sword. In other words, being killed for your faith. He's, Paul's writing to Romans, right? To literally Christians who would have been killed by the emperor. Um, probably Nero was the emperor at the time that Paul was writing this letter. He killed a lot of Christians. We know that from history. And so Paul's writing to people who are under extreme tension and stress. We, we may feel that too. We, we should put some historical context in it and not feel, feel too bad for ourselves. <laughs> but, but listen, we, we can get this. We can feel in our darker moments, we might feel it's hopeless. Will any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 36 says, as it's written, he's going to quote a psalm here. For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's writing this, using this quotation from the Psalms, because the people in Rome were feeling like they were being lambs led to the slaughter. They were being killed for their faith. But so how does Paul answer the question, what will separate us from the love of Christ? All these things, will any of these things separate us from Jesus? Verse 37, no. In all these things, all of these things. In, so what are these things? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors is a translation of a Greek word that, that is literally hyper-conquerors. Okay? Hyper-conquerors. Like above and beyond conquerors. We're more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. The love of God. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, catch this, nor things to come. Your future is fine, guys. Nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's Paul's point? What's the Bible's point? <laughs> Guys, nothing is going to keep you out of Jesus' arms. You might even be killed for be believing what you believe, and that's not going to separate you from the love of God. Keep the long view. It's the big picture. And I know that that doesn't mean we all want to go through horrible things. No one wants to go through horrible things. That's, but but if, even, if that is our, even if that is our lot, if that's what God calls us to, and I don't know if it is or isn't, right? I'm not, I'm not saying it is. But if it is, what difference does it make in eternity's view? You know, one of the things that we're, we're lied to a lot by Satan, again, going back to Thomas Brooks, is that he's going to convince you that you are just a vile, wicked person that can't be loved. And, and Thomas Brooks essentially says, yeah, that's true. We are vile people. We, are, we sang it this morning, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I hope you actually believe that because I'm a wretch. If it wasn't for Jesus and the amazing grace that he gives to us. We are vile, but listen, that doesn't stop God's love from reaching us. 
There's a promise of grace and mercy for every sinner who comes back to God through his love. To quote, to quote Brooks, he says this, sinner, he calls you a sinner in the book a lot. It's great. I love it. <laughs> Just calls you a sinner. Sinner, it's not your great sins that exclude you from his mercy. If you will break off your sins by repentance and return to the fountain of mercy, Christ's heart, Christ's arms are open wide to embrace the returning prodigal. He says, it's not the greatness of your sins, but it's the persisting in your sin that is your eternal overthrow. Guys, if you, are, if you recognize your need for grace and you come back to the fountain of mercy, it doesn't matter how many times you do it, you got to keep coming back. Keep going back to the mercy of Jesus Christ that you will be safe in him. You will be secure in him. There will be nothing that separates you from his love. We, we have to, I think, really hear this because as we walk through the tension, right? we're wrapping this ser- series up today, so let's land the plane. As we walk in this tension of being forgiven sinners but still struggling sinners, the thing that anchors us is ultimately the love of God. That God loves a sinner and calls them to himself. That's our hope. The the hope is not that you will just suddenly stop being a sinner or that I will just suddenly stop struggling with sins. We will never on this side of glory experience that in fullness, right? We may conquer some sins. We may see some of those things disappear. By God's grace, I hope so. I hope so. I hope we make progress. But But the point of this is that we're still always going to struggle. We're always going to wrestle. And so we always have to lean back into the love of God. It is his love that calls us home. Think of the prodigal son, the story that Jesus tells us of of a boy who runs away from home spends all of his money, ends up eating pig food because he has nothing else to eat. He's destitute. And when he wakes up from his, his stupidity and he, and he goes, why am I here? What is his response? I should go home to my dad because his servants have more than enough bread. So, so what's in the, the son's mind? When, what is he thinking? He's saying, my dad loves people and he'll love me if I come home. That's the same thing that we need to recognize as we sin and struggle, that we have a God who loves us and will always welcome us when we come back home. That, let's keep that, those two things, the long view and the love of God in our, in our hearts as we move through this and we'll, we'll begin to actually see real transformation. I'm, I'm convinced of it. I'm convinced the more we grow and, and experience the love of God, the more we will actually stop wanting to sin. It's not overnight. It's not going to happen immediately. It's not going to happen completely, but you'll see progress as you lean into the love of God. So let's pray. Um, Father, I'm I'm so thankful for you and that you would love us enough to send your son into this world to die for sinners. Um, We are not worthy of it. We are not deserving of it, but you are amazing and gracious to us. So I just pray, Father, that as we sing a few songs today to draw our hearts into those truths that you would speak 
that your spirit would speak to our hearts as, as we need today. And I pray that you would draw sinners back home to you. I pray you would draw all of our hearts to you today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.